Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I talk about how the discussion between Socrates and Euthyphro leads to the famous Euthyphro dilemma. Specifically, we talk about how Euthyphro's sophistic view of the gods leads inexorably to the two bad choices that the dilemma offers us. In turn, we suggest that there is a way out of this dilemma merely by not having a sophistic view of God. We also suggest, suggest that seeing the divine as a sophist would is a perennial problem for us, even those of us who worship a God who became a servant and died for us. Wandering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out our site, tacticalfaith.com, for information about Tactical Faith, as well as our other podcast, TF Radio, and for ways to contact us or support us. If you'd like to contact me and Joel directly, email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's wondering with an underscore where the A or the O would be. Or follow us on Twitter, at wonderingwisdom, and again, an underscore. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. In the previous couple episodes, we've been talking about Euthyphro, the dialogue from Plato where uh, there's a famous problem named after it. We might actually get to the problem today. Um, but the the sense that we're getting at is the sophists, Plato's big enemy, they're focused on kind of winning, on succeeding, not necessarily being good, being virtuous, and the issue of piety. And Euthyphro seems to think of piety in a transactional kind of way. You know, you, you do things to make the gods happy, the gods give you the things you want. Um, Plato says, I don't think that's the case. And we've talked about how Christianity agrees and says, I don't think that's the case. Today, we're going to move on in the dialogue and we're going to look at how Euthyphro tries to explain this, how this creates a, uh, in what's in philosophy is a famous dilemma called the Euthyphro dilemma. And how Plato responds to that, and how as Christians we can respond to that. So when in this dialogue, Plato keeps asking Euthyphro questions, and Euthyphro gives definitions, and then Plato raises questions that show that definition doesn't work. Um, and we're going to go down some of that path today, uh, and Travis is going to lead us there. We had ended by, when we, t- when we were talking about the Euthyphro, we basically ended with a disagreement between Socrates and Euthyphro over how the gods acted. And we had we had established that the primary difference between humans and gods in, in the Euthyphro, really in the sophistic view, but in, in this particular case, Euthyphro, was that the gods just had more power. And then we went on a long rant about Luke Acts, empire power, spirit power, and all this other kind of stuff in the previous podcast. And, uh, but I, yeah, like Joel said, let's, let's pick up from there and, and see, see what's going on, uh, in the rest of the Euthyphro and how it leads to the Euthyphro dilemma. So they've had this disagreement. Euthyphro holds to the idea that the gods are in fact, like he has presented them. Um, and Socrates then wants to ask Euthyphro, uh, he says, Socrates in his standard form, he, in fact, he does this in, in most of the dialogues where there's some sort of disagreement like this. It happens at the Mino, it happens in the Republic, it happens in the Euthyphro, it happens in, uh, well, a variety of them. Um, simply he says, okay, well, since you're the teacher here, Euthyphro, I'm going to go with your view of the gods. Now, can you explain to me what piety, piety is? Uh, piety is the way that we relate 
to the God. It has something to do with, it's the virtue of how we relate to the gods. And so it's the virtue of having the proper relation to the gods, something along those lines. Now, we don't quite get the definition. I can't give a definition, otherwise Socrates will come after me. But Socrates asked Euthyphro, who's an expert on religious matters, to tell him what piety is. So Euthyphro starts to give, he gives a response. And the first thing he says is, I think, I think we hit this in the first podcast. He said, well, what I'm doing is pious. And I can show you because the gods do the same thing. And what was Euthyphro doing? If you remember, Euthyphro was taking his father, I uh, was trying to take his father to court for murder, just like Zeus attacked his father and just Kronos, and just like Kronos attacked his father, uh, Uranus or heaven. And so Socrates says, well, that's not very helpful because it's, there's too many different options. I need to know what the form is. And this uh, Greek word for form, it could be form or idea. Form basically just refers to, and this is what Socrates is going at in all, in all these dialogues where he's asking for a definition. It's not strictly a definition. It's really, but for our purposes, th these are interchangeable. It's the shape into which all acts of piety fit. So what is the one thing that all acts of piety have in common and which is essential to, to their being pious? That's what he's asking for. That's that's the form or the idea of piety. It would be very helpful to know this because if I know what the form or the idea of piety is, I can check all of my actions and I can compare them to that form and know whether I'm in fact acting piously or not. And Socrates is being accused of being impious. So if he can get the idea, if he can get the form of piety from Euthyphro, the expert, then he can go to at to the Athenian court and say. And he could ev he evaluate his actions in relation to this form and determine whether he's pious or not. And then he can either like repent of his impiety or he can prove that he is pious, right? So this is this is kind of the ostensible purpose of the of, of the dialogue. So Socrates pushes Euthyphro to say, you can't just tell me what, what you're doing. That's not very helpful. I need to know what the form is. And so Euthyphro says, well, what is what is dear to the gods is what is pious. And what they dislike is impious. Well, there are a lot of gods, right? I mean, you can see the problem with this right away. And Socrates brings it up, right? The gods, the gods have already been described as gods who are at enmity with one another, warring with one another, you know, eating their kids, beating up their dads, you know, this sort of thing going on. Given that that's how the gods are acting, it doesn't seem like they all care about the same thing. And in fact, wars actually take place. This is one of the things that Socrates brings up. You see war among the gods, and, and people don't war over things that are trivial, easily provable or measurable matters. Like we don't, if you, if I'm at the marketplace and you've given me what you claim is uh, three pounds of meal, and I say, no, you only give me two and a half pounds, what we do is we take it to a place and get it measured, right? We're not going to start a war over that. Now, I may smack you in the face because you, because you ripped me off, or you may smack me in the face because I tried to rip you off. But basically, these things are quickly resolved. And among people as powerful the gods, surely they have some easily easy way to measure this sort of stuff. So if there are wars, by the way, I'm just kind of repeating what Socrates and Euthyphro are talking about. I'm just trying to put it in contemporary terms, you know, because we always talk about weighing meal at the marketplace. Euthyphro recognizes the problem. Well, the gods are, in fact, fighting over things that are really important, different views of justice, different views of beauty, goodness, you know, goodness, the, all those sorts of things that, that we battle over, right? Different views of the way things should be. 
different views really of the virtues and, and goodness and so on and so forth. So if that's the case, then it could be possible that you have that what is pious to Athena is not pious to Zeus. In fact, you see these in the tragedies, the Agamemnon, go to war against the Trojans. Don't go to war against the Trojans. And so he's obeying, he's being pious to Zeus's command, but he's being impious to Athena. And so this ends up getting to the point where he has to sacrifice his daughter in order to get the ships moving again. Otherwise, they're going to be stuck and die at sea. And that's the very nature of the tragedy is that one God is pleased and one God is not. And so with the action. So if it could be possible to be both pious and impious at the same time. And Socrates finds this disconcerting at the least. So he says, if they're battling, they're battling over the stuff that really matters. And the stuff that really matters is the stuff that's related to goodness and justice and virtue and beauty and so on and so forth. If that's the case, then it could be it could be the case that piety, you could be both pious and impious at the same time, which means there's no, the implication is there's no form of piety. There's no, there's nothing to know. There's nothing to connect it to. And so you're left in a situation of arbitrariness. Well, it's not that it's, that there's nothing to connect it to, but you're connecting it to which God's whims that you want to connect it to. And so Right. There's no there's no unifying principle beyond, well, this God, you know, so if you're a devoted follower of one of the gods, then you have your definition, but that could put you at odds with one of the other gods. And, and then, you know, you might get smited by the opposing God when you think you're, you're serving your God. Yeah. Th- and this came up again, the Bible project podcast, but one of the things they brought up was with regard to the 10 commandments, how, uh, it can seem oppressive to us that God gives these lists of do's and don'ts and so on and so forth. But they claim that during 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 the times of the ancients, and that you can see this in the Euthyphro too, people had the sense that the gods were angry at them or they had offended the gods and they didn't know why because they didn't know what their gods required of them. So they very often had to kind of, you know, if something bad happened, I believed a God was angry at me and I would start doing sacrifices and I would try to figure out what I did to anger the God because it wasn't clear what they, what their, what the God's will was. So God's simply announcing, Hey, this is the kind of stuff I like. And this is the kind of stuff I don't like. It's actually very helpful because he's relatively clear with, with the Israelites. Whereas with the Greek gods, a lot of it feels like, did they wake up on the wrong side of the bed and are they in a bad mood? Have they not had their coffee yet today? Those, those kinds of things uh, where they they seem much more uh, shifting based on the day or their moods. Right, which is a very anthropomorphic way to describe the gods, right? Waking up on the wrong side of the bed, needing their coffee, and so, so forth. So though coffee is a godly sort of thing to be consuming. Amen. Um, so, so... Euthyphro sees the problem of having a bunch of gods liking different things, and, and that, that breaks up piety into a thousand different pieces based on the whims of the gods. That's a problem. Because then, then basically, the problem is Euthyphro can't know what piety is. This, it undermines his knowledge. He doesn't know what piety is because there is, no, there is no single thing called piety. There's a bunch of different kinds of pieties that really have no connection except that they happen to be pleasing to a divine being. But if that's the best you can do, you can't judge any kind of action, whether it's pious or not. You just kind of have to hope it is. Or you may learn one God or something like that. But 
Socrates was concerned about piety itself. And Euthyphro sees the problem and says, okay, piety is what all the gods love, and impiety is what all the gods hate. So you need unanimity to have piety. Uh, if one god likes it, but the other ones don't, then it's not piety. If a bunch of gods love something, but a bunch, of, but a few other ones don't like it, then it's not impiety. Piety is, has to do with this unanimity. So a unanimous agreement among the gods that this is dear gives you piety. And this is where we start start to get toward the Euthyphro dilemma in Socrates' usual complicated, difficult way. What I'm asking this to those who are listening. What do you think could be the problem here with viewing piety as that which all the gods love? And by the way, you can see here where this overlaps with the Christian view. Because it, you can think of a unanimous agreement about what is pious among a, a group of gods as similar to a single god's will. Right? Because I would argue that God is unanimous with with himself. Really, there's three. Well, I, I mean, you could even you could even think of it in terms of Christian doctrine. Um, what? How much? How much does the church agree on across denominations about our our one God in three persons? Nah, mostly the Nicene Creed, but even there, we argue about the filioque. <laughs> Well, we don't argue about that. We just split. We don't even know what it means anymore. <laughs> that was a thousand years ago. We don't care. But but what what I'm what I'm trying to get at is even in the way that we view a single god, there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of um, differences, and so when we are just talking about the one god that we perceive. And we have all this difference. Why should we expect that many gods would come to unanimity on on something or on yeah. much of anything? Yeah, and this 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 is the this is the problem that I have with a lot of scholars who are dealing with the Euthyphro is they seem to miss the fact that this is a dialogue written in in the context, and you have to remember you have to remember what came before as you're going into this. And what leads to the Euthyphro dilemma? Because the way the Euthyphro dilemma is usually used in modern, in the modern form, is something like this. And we should probably get this out, and then we can start working our way through how Socrates gets Euthyphro there. Even though the details aren't that big of a deal, but if you read it, it might start getting confused. And I don't know if we want to. We could perhaps go into this, or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. But the Euthyphro dilemma, in its present form is something like this. Is something good because God commands it? Or is does God command it because it's good? And this is a dilemma because both horns of the dilemma lead to some difficulties. So if it's good, if, if God, let's start with, let's start with the, the simpler of the difficulties. God commands it because it's good. What's the problem with that? What if God commands something that we think is atrocious, like, I don't know, slaughtering babies. Well, you grab the wrong horn of the dilemma. So there, there are two horns, right? There's one is something good, is good because God commands it. I was referring to the other one. If so, oh. does God command something because it's good? 
Well, so, let's start, let's start with yours. Let's start with yours. Okay. The first horn is, let's say something is good simply because God commands it. The problem is, what if God does command something that's terrible? Now, or, what would be I the, mean, we, we we could even talk about the Isaac Abraham Isaac example, you know, where where God uh, seems to command Abraham to kill his son, and then he doesn't. Um, yeah, he he commands him to kill his son, but then commands him to stop. So what is right. God? What was God doing? Was he commanding him to kill his son? Anyway, but if somebody told us now, yeah, I killed my, you know, let's say someone who's going to prison. I yeah, I killed my I killed my kid because God told me to. We'd say, okay, you're crazy and you're a monster, and God would never do that, except the one time that He did. Now He didn't. He He stopped him. But you know you can't expect that to happen every time, and and we we can discuss multiple t- interpretations of that story and what was going on and yeah um, that's a real that's a real entry the Bible Project has some interesting things to say about that story too. Um, <laughs> so does Kierkegaard. Yeah, yeah so does Kierkegaard. <laughs> uh, yeah, Fear and Trembling, a great book uh, to reflect on that story. But so let's say we now our normal response might be something like this. I, I could imagine someone responding, you know. Well, God, God would never do that because God is good. So God would not command us to, to torture, let's say, torture babe, torture babies for you know for fun or whatever, because God is good. And my response would be, "What's your standard for saying that God is good? Right. If something is good because God commands it, there is no standard outside of God by which to judge whether God is good. So His command, God's commands are God's commands. Period. So if God commands it then it is good. It by definition that means it's good. Now there are two ways there are two elements of this problem. One I think is the more platonic what what actually Plato's trying to get at in this dialogue more so. But this other and it's not what we talk about in the contemporary. The contemporary view is something like this. This this makes this makes this could mean that God could command horrible things and we can't accept that. But that's not really the issue for Plato, I don't think. I think the issue for Plato is it leads to arbitrariness. The point is we have no idea. We're left left with a God who could command anything and it would be right or it would seem right. Maybe it would even seem right to us. And we have no standard by which to judge it. We have no capacity for judging whether an action is in fact good or bad because if God commands it, it's good. There's no standard external to that. There's no, there's no measure against which to test that. And so if something is arbitrary, then you can't really have knowledge of it. And so therefore, there can be no, no knowledge of the virtue of piety. Or in the contemporary view, it's just goodness in general. Um, in, in the euthyphro, it's specifically piety. And the knowledge of virtue to Plato is everything. Right. Like, why would you focus on trying to gain anything else? Uh, I mean, get a little food to eat, but other than that, your life should be about pursuing the meaning of virtue. And if you cannot define virtue because it's arbitrarily, it's based on the whims of a God who has no standard. And you got to understand, you might say, well, God isn't a whimsical God who's making arbitrary commandments. But by what standard do you have to measure God? There's nothing for God, for God's will to be steady because there's no such thing as a measurement outside of God by which God must act. So from our perspective, it's it's just absolutely arbitrary. We have no capacity to understand why something is good or not, except simply that God commanded it. 
And who knows? Maybe God did command that lady to drown her kids in the bathtub. You have no but, idea. And, and, you know, my response to that is if someone tells me that God has told them to kill their kids, I call the police because I say, God didn't tell me he told you to kill your kids. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Abraham probably shouldn't have put it on the news. Um, <laughs> now, the Blues Brothers, I believe their mission was from God. <laughs> I, so Blues Brothers is old. If you're really old, you might know about that. All I remember is the part where they just fall for a long time. So um, the other horde in the dilemma then is, well, let's say there is a standard outside of God, right? So God commands something because it is good. What's the problem with that? Well, then the, the gods aren't in charge of piety. Yeah. the God, the God, In fact, you wouldn't even need to bring God into the into the equation, right? There's no need to even have God in this. Let's stop talking about the gods or God because God has nothing to do with the good. The good is external to God, which means God must submit to a standard that is above God. And that should make us a little uncomfortable too. But it seems like those are the only two options, right? Either the standard is not above God and therefore whatever God commands is in fact good or the standard is above God, and therefore we don't even need to, we don't even need God in the picture to understand what good is. That's a that's a pretty serious dilemma, right? And neither horn is entirely acceptable. It leads us to to some discomfort. Yes. And so maybe we should go quickly how he, how it gets there. Even though I don't know if I want to get into the weeds too much here because it might just confuse people. But let's, let's do some of it, right? So, uh, but what Socrates is trying to do here is he's showing that what the, what, the way Euthyphro is talking is it leads to no knowledge about, about what piety is. So he says, is something a carried thing because it's carried, or is it carried because it's a carried thing? He brings up, he says something like that. Well, what's the answer? Is something a carried thing because it's carried, or is it carried because it's a carried thing? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems obvious that the, the action upon it makes it a carried thing as opposed to the carried thing making someone have to pick it up. Right. If I say, if I say, hey, your book is a carried thing, you better pick it up. You better carry it. That's, that's confusing. But if I, if I see you carrying your book, I could declare your book a carried thing. Now, this seems like, what the heck are we talking about? But the point that he's, the point he's trying to make is something like this. Uh, the definite, if you define, this is going to get way too much into the weeds, but if you define something, if you define piety as, as that which the gods love, then when you end up talking about what piety is, you get something like this. The God loved is the God, is that which the gods love. Yes. Which is not terribly helpful, right? We've, we've fallen into essentially sort of a, sort of a tautology. Now, there's some pushback on this, and it's at this point of this pushback where people are criticizing Socrates for making a bad argument. Again, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but it, it, might, it would be really fun to. But there's people who push back at this point because they're, they say, you know, what Socrates is assuming, and I'm just going to describe what they say, essentially. What Socrates is assuming is that it's the gods loving it that causes it to be pious. 
right? That's what we said in the contemporary form of the Euthyphro dilemma. God commanding it makes it good. That's a that's a causal relationship. It's not a correlation relation. It's not simply a correlation relationship, or whatever. It is pure. It's it's strictly causal. And their argument is Euthyphro could have had a way out of this if he wouldn't have said, "Hey, there's not. It's not a causal relationship." So, what what does that mean? Well. What do we know about the god about Euthyphro's gods so far? They're powerful. Other than that, they're what? Transactional. They're transact. Yeah, they're transactional gods, which is very interesting. And uh, their their actions are animal like. And what I mean by that, or you could say natural in a kind of a scare quotes way. Remember when he talked about the creation of the mortal races, according to Protagoras, another very famous sophist, uh, we, we are created just like, humans are created just like all the other animals, and ethics is something that's added on well after the fact. It's a couple, pl- it's a couple spaces removed from our nature. And so ethics is a means to maintain society. It is not something that's essential to our nature. The view, someone who views, who lives like a sophist views the gods in the same way. And the way Euthyphro describes the gods is very much us. It's, they're just like humans, except with more natural power, right? Remember, uh, Epimetheus was handing out the natural powers. Well, we didn't get any. So claws and strength might be natural to a bear. Being good isn't. Humans have no nat- no real natural powers. Ethics is not one of our natural powers, according to the sophists. It is a band-aid. It's almost like a it's almost like a tie that binds us up so that we can survive, but our fulfillment is found in not being bound up. Not being constrained in this way. The gods have natural powers, but those natural powers are not goodness. They're, I don't know, lightning and water or whatever happen. You know, they have they have, have power over. But ethics is not a part of it. So therefore, if the gods loving something relates in any way to something being good, it doesn't arise because they're good. It arises because of their power. Does that make sense? Because they're not good. They're not really any better than us. They're this, they're just as arbitrary and as confused and selfish and animalistic as we are. They make something good by their power, which means it's purely it's purely a I point a gun at your head and say this is pious, and you say whatever you say, sir. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So might makes right. That's a far more succinct way of saying it. <laughs> So, yeah, but that's the issue. It's a might makes right thing. And so the gods produce piety through strength of arms. And if that's the case, then there is no reason to think that the gods loving something, even if it's unanimous, there's no reason to think that that's actually a virtue. And there's no reason to think that there is a reason. And that's the gods could smite you for disagreeing. (laughs) Right. But that's, that's not a reason connected to the good, right? You see how, you see how piety now becomes is still unknowable. It's only knowable by asking the gods. It's sort of like 
I mean, I don't know if you've ever dealt with someone who's, who is, you know, one day they're nice, the next day they're mean. And again, it's depends on how they slept the night before, whether they had their coffee, what's going on in their personal life, maybe a boss or something. And there are times when, when their arbitrariness, you just, you have to guess how you're going to relate to them until maybe you really get to know them and you can read the signs. But you have to guess how you're going to relate to them by sort of testing the waters and then responding based on how they're acting. That's sort of what's going on here with the gods. And for Euthyphro to declare it pious, he's declaring that he doesn't actually know. But the issue is, the key issue is, you begin to solve this problem if you reject Euthyphro's view of the gods as being at war and enmity. The, the Euthyphro dilemma arises not because of a series of issues about unanimity and so on and so forth. It arises directly because of the disagreement between Socrates and Euthyphro. Socrates says, I don't think the gods are that way. I don't think they're like eating their kids and attacking their dads and so on and so forth. I don't think they're at war with one another. I don't believe what all these poets and all these stories say about them. And Euthyphro goes, Euthyphro says, no, these are actually true. And curiously enough, He's focusing, he focuses, the story he focuses on when he, when he talks about this is a story of, that reflects his own desire to attack his father, which, you know, I, that's what I do. If I'm going to preach about something, I preach about the other person's sin that, and it makes me look good. That's, that's what I tend to focus on, on how I'm right and everybody else is wrong. But, uh, Socrates disagrees with this story. So we need to st we need to stop and say okay, we're going to solve the Euthyphro dilemma. It's not by saying, "Well, no," but God, re our God has a lot of power, like even more than the Greek gods. Yes, so what? It's still the same issue. It's still it's unclear. I mean, you can't even call God good if God's commands make something good by force of arms. Then you can't even call God good. Or. At least we're not saying that it's because he has empire power that makes him good. Yes. Here's where we need to start getting kind of strange. But I think we're going to do that in the next episode. So <laughs> sort of set up the Euthyphro dilemma. And I would encourage you to read through the Euthyphro so you can see how see how Plato's doing this. And we'll, ha we'll have the link in the show notes. But I think you can just, just look up Euthyphro online and you're going to find it. Um, it's a pretty short... Uh, it's a pretty short dialogue and, and it's quite and, a, so it's great. And read it for yourself. Don't, don't look at Wikipedia and, and read their summary or anything like that. It, because it, I'll be wrong. <laughs> Travis will tell you that it's wrong, but I mean, there, there's something good about sitting down and reading something, even something that might be a little challenging and um, getting your brain to, to, to go through it. And, and when you read it, read, don't read it like, like it's a, a you know, documentary or you know like a reference book but read it like it's a play you know try and you know imagine that this is an actual conversation going on and you know reading you know try and imagine you know the, you can imagine facial expressions you can imagine two different tones but when you read it um you know, try and try and imagine what it what this conversation would have been like because i think it it will draw things out that that just trying to read it as uh, what today is kind of straight philosophy, uh, you're, you're going to miss some, some great things. 
Yeah, don't boil the play down to the main propositions. Like we're doing a little bit now, but not entirely. Otherwise, you'll miss the point. On that note, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Thanks for listening and have a great day.